Hello and welcome to the Research Connections podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting-edge research and connects it with users in the community. Could each of you just introduce yourself, your name, your role, and yeah. how you're connected to this conversation? Yeah, go ahead, Corinne. Okay, so Dr. Corinne Mason, I'm an Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies and Sociology at Brandon University, and I've been working in anti-violence organizations for a very long time and also came out of a history of domestic violence in, in my childhood and am a survivor. And I advocated and was a whistleblower in 2016 uh, around a very popularized conversation of sexual violence at the, at the university. Since then, I've been thinking a lot about sexualized violences on, on campuses and specifically the institutional responses and the research project that I'm working on now with a colleague, uh, Dr. Irene Shanker at um, Mount Royal University in Calgary, is looking at faculty responses to sexualized violence and thinking about where there might be faculty expertise that's being either underutilized or immobilized by universities. And so we're really asking who are who's at policy tables? Are faculty at policy tables? Are faculty using their research? Do universities want to hear feminist research? about sexual violence and we're specifically thinking about um, what bodies are are excluded from these conversations so we're looking at queer and trans folks in particular women of color black indigenous people of color women with disabilities and yeah and other kind of marginalized folks on on campuses and so that uh we're just doing data collection now which is Mm -hmm. exciting Mm -hmm. yeah Oh, oh, I can't wait till that comes out. Yeah, that'll I, be. I'm gonna. You'll be getting an invitation to be interviewed, Carla. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! No, that would be great. And I'm Carla Navid, and I'm the sexual violence coordinator here at Brown University. Mm-hmm. All right, and I'm Michelle Lamb. I'm the director of BU Cares. BU Cares is the Center for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here with me. Yeah, thank and you for, for this having conversation. Us. Yeah. How long have you known each other? Well, since I came here, which was actually Crin and I came the same year, 2013. I remember I met you in yeah. our employee orientation because I commented on her tattoo because yeah. she's got a Crin has a tattoo in the back of her <laughs> neck of uh, three birds. Is it yeah. three birds? Yeah. And I told okay. her I really like yeah. them. And well, it was I your sisters. It symbolizes your it symbolizes your sisters, was that? Yeah, I've got two sisters, so there's three birds, yeah. Yeah, and I have two sisters, so that's probably... Many prob- a tattoo. Yeah, yeah that's probably <laughs> yeah. why that stuck with me. Wow, yeah. so you sort of bonded in yeah. your orientation. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I think that there's sort of this kinship, too, when you do this kind of work, and you're marginalized, and you feel alone, and then when you're with someone... Corinne, you feel like she just gets you. Like, mm-hmm. it's like a part of the family. It's like, I don't have to explain it to Corinne. Mm-hmm. She just gets it. Because I always find I'm over-explaining myself mm-hmm. anytime I'm in areas where they don't talk about sexualized violence or oppression mm-hmm. or resistance or, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that. I feel like as we move forward, people are starting to become more, like, are you doing less and less explaining as... The work continues or do you still feel like there's a lot of explaining and people aren't understanding? So when I speak with staff Mm -hmm. and yeah, mostly staff and faculty, I feel like that explaining is getting a lot less. That a lot of folks here stay a long time. So they've heard my spiels Mm and my presentations. So uh, I think that popular media has helped a lot with that too. Right. That with the Me Too movement and lots being in the media, people are more aware Mm -hmm. now. But when I talk to students, I find that to be a bit different, that 
with students, I have to educate. I think the Me Too movement and the popularity of that conversation has brought to light particular kinds of explanations around sexualized violence and, and also specific kinds of responses. And so there's a, a way in which that social, like the popularization of the social media campaign of that work um, has allowed individuals to come forward and to name their experiences and has really worked around the shame and stigma of sexualized violence. But then at the same time, people are also becoming inundated with the like a similar kind of conversation. And so there's a way in which people who are not doing the work around sexualized violence, either as survivors or working in anti-violence organizations or doing what Carla does, those people check out of the conversation because they feel like they've heard it all before. Mm. And I think that's one of the ways in which uh, rape culture is becoming more insidious around the Me Too movement is that people think they know mm -hmm. and they think they don't have the answers and they think it's simple. And they also think that it's often about having the right kind of complainant process. If we just get the policy right, if we just get the procedure right, if we just ensure that survivors can tell their stories, that's enough somehow. And that is the baseline <laughs> where we should be in a conversation. And people want to stop that conversation there. And I think that that's the work, I think, in this moment more than anything is to get people to, to move beyond what they think they already know about sexualized violence. Yeah, definitely. I think that people are looking for one answer for being able to help or assist folks with uh, sexualized violence on campus and there's so much diversity and we're not doing a great job we need to do a lot better job at i think everybody wants this perfect sort of survivor and they just don't exist we don't have perfect survivors survivors are complex and they come to us uh, whichever way they're comfortable with and we just pick up the work. And I've always tried to explain to the university that it's like an elephant we have to ride, that this isn't something we can control and we can drive, that we just have to yeah. wait for it to come to us and then figure it out on a case-by-case -case basis how mm -hmm. best to help. And the answer is always with the survivors. If you just spend time with the survivor, all of a sudden it starts to look clear about what needs to happen because usually the survivor has the answers. Mm -hmm. they, they already know what will work for them. Sometimes that takes a little bit more time, but uh, yeah, so mm. definitely I find though that faculty and staff are, are becoming a bit more aware, but the students, when it comes to sexualized violence, you've got your first years coming in, you know, you've got students that haven't had any of the trainings or mm -hmm. anything like that. So I feel like I have to repeat myself there, but not with, not the same with the faculty and staff. I find that a lot are coming now to trainings with a lot more awareness, but like Kryn, I agree, agree with Kryn, like it's just a baseline, like mm -hmm. we've got a long ways to go. I think we forget on campuses is that a majority of students, faculty and staff are either survivors or perpetrators of sexualized violence. And so we know that students who are coming in their first year have either perpetuated violence already before even stepping on campus or they've experienced sexualized violence. And so those students often have experiential knowledge, but don't have the language to articulate the things that have happened to them or that you know they have done to other people when they come to campus. And that's about shame, that's about stigma, that's about lack of sexual health education that includes conversations around consent. And we can talk about all the reasons why, but these conversations are not 
happening as much as they should be in, in schools, especially in rural and, and remote spaces that don't have access to organizations like um, the Sexual Education Resource Center, like their Teen Talk program, which specifically has these conversations with, um, with young people and um, where peers actually have this conversation amongst themselves to really gain that, that education and specifically the language and the skills to articulate um, their experiences around sexual health and, and consent and bodily autonomy and, and all those kinds of things. And yeah, we just don't see it. So yeah, in our first year classes in gender studies, I used to do a sex ed class I would bring somebody in to do it because it's more appropriate that way. I don't think students want to talk to their professors about it. And they shouldn't. There's boundaries. Um, but I found that we were having conversations about violence and, uh, and gendered and sexual violence and so many students didn't know the basics. And so, yeah, we'd have to implement that into, into our curriculum because that, that level of understanding was just so low. Do you know the current Manitoba stats of? Well, the uh, the only numbers that I'm aware of is is that across the board, like across Canada, we know in general that one in four women and wow. one in six men will at some point be exposed to some form of sexualized violence. I think those numbers are low. You know, I'd like to know what the definition, because I think in like Canada, the Stats Canada, for example, where that number comes from, you know, it's described as sexual abuse, oh, right? Okay. So that's a, a wide umbrella. Mm-hmm. But anyways, so, but as far as um, perpetrator stats, that's where we really lack, don't we? It's not, yeah. you know, you know that there's, uh, evidence of a powerful discourse at hand when the folks that do the harm we have mm-hmm. almost no knowledge mm-hmm. on that so. right well and most of that data would be self-reported right so someone might be not not very likely to volunteer to put their information on a survey saying yes i have perpetrated this right. violence right yeah. yeah the stats i use when i present uh dr david lissack he was out of the um i think it's boston university or university of massachusetts one of the two and he uh did research on perpetrator behavior on college and university campuses and dr lissack uh he identified he would interview students male students and he would describe incidents of sexualized violence mm-hmm. but he wouldn't actually call it sexual assault or, mm-hmm. or rape in the interviews and found that what he called the undetected rapists on their campus. His research yielded that the vast amount of sexual assaults on their campus were being committed by a very small number of Mm. men. Yeah. Often the people, yeah, they're they're not one-time abusers, it's serial. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I think one thing that is really interesting is that we actually don't have good data on this. And I'm a qualitative sociologist. I care about data to some extent. I care a little bit less about numbers, but I do think they're important to communicate the importance of an issue. And, and we just don't have those numbers. We don't have that data. Self-reporting is a is one of the barriers, I think, to getting accurate data. But also, there's not very much political will, either in the province of Manitoba, but also, I think, federally around using Stats Canada or other kinds of uh, surveys to, to get numbers. And so I think that's part of the conversation too, is that we actually don't have um, much information around prevalence, except for that survivors have all the information, right, around prevalence. And so all you have to do is talk to people in your life to know just how often people are harassed, assaulted, raped, experienced some kind of forms of abuse, exploitation. It's incredibly pervasive when you have conversations, but we don't really have raw data for it, which is unfortunate. So 
qualitative yeah. people or the quantitative people out there. You got you got work to do. Yeah. yeah. But I do think like the CDC report tells us that like if the media is doing this kind of survey analysis, tells us that the data isn't there. Like they when they were thinking about looking at violence in schools, they were looking at all kinds of violence. Um, but they really were like, oh, this is a huge research gap and the media is going to fill it. Why are we letting the media fill the research gap? Like as academics, I think we got to think about what our jobs are and the kinds of work that, that we can and should be doing. And I'm sure there's people out there who are doing this work as well. But that report showed us that it's like almost 30% of girls said they experienced unwanted sexual touching and other forms of sexual harassment. 42% of them experienced more than once. And so that's, that's a pretty significant prevalence. And then it was much higher in the prairies. And so we have to think about prairie culture, I think, in particular, because of where we are, but also because of the high rates of violence across the prairies. Do you think that was always the case and we're just hearing about it more? Or do you think it's increasing over time? No, I think it's always been there, don't you? And we're just yeah, starting. So. Oh, yeah. I think as a therapist, right, because I come at it from more the helping mm-hmm. uh, lens. And I've been a therapist with what's called uh, victims of crime compensation. So anyone that's sexually assaulted, for example, goes to the criminal justice system, they qualify for funding for therapy. And I think that the numbers have always been there. I Mm -hmm. think that we're just starting to get, and I don't think we're there yet, an accurate picture of what's going on. Mm -hmm. I think sexual violence is much more prevalent than we want to believe Mm -hmm. uh, in our culture. Yeah, I I think that, I don't think that it's a matter of, because we're shining a a light on it, that it's increasing. I think it's a matter of finding allies and putting uh, a team of us together and just for prevention education Mm -hmm. and being able to look at all facets of the university and looking at all groups being represented. I've been a very privileged person you know, as a, as a white female, socially located, I'm educated, I'm able-bodied, I'm heterosexual, I've had a lot of privilege. And I feel like in these four years, I've got a glimpse into what it feels like to be marginalized. Mm-hmm. Never be heard to walk into a room and feel like I've got to case the joint out, mm-hmm. so to speak, and figure <laughs> out who are my allies? Is it safe for me to talk here? And that's been a really incredible experience. Mm-hmm for me. I do think that we're on the right track as far as what needs to happen, but it's going to be more of that underground. It's not going to be legitimized, you know, by our institution yet. I, you know, I, I'm hopeful, but I feel like after four years, it's, I'm not wait, like we can't wait any longer. A lot of times people will throw around the, the catchphrases or the jargon of this movement, which is consent culture. And I think that most people don't even understand what that means. So I think that's my part of my role is to make sure that I'm incorporating that in presentations because consent culture isn't just about, you know, asking for consent when we're being intimate with someone. Consent culture is also about if I want to give you a hug or if I, well, Okay, maybe I don't want to go there. I'm not a hugger and I don't really like high fives. And uh, and so that's super, super important. But there's also importance just around like, how, how do we be with each other in spaces? Mm-hmm. And how do we talk to each other um, in ways that, that uh, 
have consent built into them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, asking, like, can I ask you a question? Is this a good time for you? Is this a good space for you? Are you feeling comfortable here? Mm -hmm. When else might we have this conversation? Mm -hmm. I think those baseline kinds of ways of being with each other um, would give us a, like a grounding of how to actually treat each other um, in public spaces, but also in private spaces. Mm -hmm. So when we find ourselves with each other at parties, or on the bus or walking home or wherever in our offices, Mm -hmm. um, we have a baseline understanding of what consent looks like and how we can practice it. Mm -hmm. Our our time is winding down, but if you have any final thoughts, now's your chance. So I just wanted to talk about uh, and make sure that folks were aware that we have third-party reporting now coming to Brandon. Tell us us a little bit about it. So third-party reporting is when there's a designated community agency that can take reports of sexualized violence and mostly sexual assault, right, uh, for the criminal justice system. And then the survivor's identity is protected. It stays with that neutral third party. And then they give them information to either RCMP or to our local, uh, our city police. Mm-hmm. And actually, we're just developing and going to hold a forum here at Brandon University in January. We're just getting it finalized here now, so it hasn't even been announced yet, to educate our community on um, that that's now an option. As well, uh, we also have, there's a federal project that Manitoba is, the, is going to do the pilot project for. That came out of the minister's office of the Trudeau government, the Minister for Gendered Violence and Women's Equality. And we're going to be the pilot project province, so we'll be the only the first in Canada. And we're going to be offering an online reporting system mm. for survivors on campuses. So what that's going to look like, we've been waiting. It's been two years. And I know they just hired their staff now in Winnipeg. And so that should be rolling out quickly. And so there'll be a link on our sexual violence uh, website here at BU. So survivors have the ability to be able to report. Mm -hmm. And they're in control of all their information. Mm -hmm. We don't get that information as a university. Nobody gets that. And here's the what I call the fun fact about that system and why I'm so excited about it is that a court subpoena can't even get that information. Mm -hmm. And as a therapist, for example, my records can all be subpoenaed, Mm -hmm. right? And here at the university, same thing as the sexual violence uh, coordinator, you know, all those records can be subpoenaed, but for the first time, survivors' information will be protected. So Mm -hmm. exciting. You know, I can't wait for it to happen. I can't say when, Mm -hmm. uh, but I know we were approved, and I know they've hired staff, so now it should be rolling out, Mm -hmm. you know, within the next couple months. So That's anyway, great. so I wanted to be able to talk yeah. about it. And yeah. for people here in Brandon, for the neutral third party reporting, where is that that they go? So the Women's Resource Center here mm-hmm. in Brandon mm-hmm. uh, is taking uh, reports uh, for third party and they will take all the reports for people who self-identify as female. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the John Howard Society in Brandon will mm-hmm. take reports for folks who self-identify as male. And then so. they send those to the police without the information of the reporter's names, right? Yes. Like if they're, you're reporting yes. that crime. Yeah. Okay. And every community designates one or two agencies. Winnipeg has three or four, I think, uh, designated agencies. And um, it's it's controlled. Like, for example, I won't be able to 
take third-party reports and give those to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I would think that, so, but what I could do, I guess, is either facilitate that for a student or faculty Mm -hmm. or or staff or accompany them, you know, Mm -hmm. to both the designated agencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that I I wanted to say is like, and and not an aside, but actually I think like really central to this conversation is that sexualized violence on campuses has been, has become a a really kind of like a central hub for thinking about violence and there's a lot of focus on sexualized violence and that's for very very good reasons but we also have an epidemic of white supremacist and anti-indigenous violence on our campuses and those conversations are not being connected to sexualized violence conversations and so again institutions have a really hard time dealing with systems but that's the only way we're going to work ourselves out of violent cultures and so the conversations around white supremacist posters on campuses the burning of on campuses has to uh, work alongside the conversations around sexualized violence um, because we don't solve all of these issues together and we don't see them as connected but we'll never be able to solve them individually yeah yeah i think that's a really good point and a really good place i think to wrap up thanks so much yeah. for the invite and thanks for taking on a tough topic yes yeah thank you for listening to the research connections podcast you can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode and for more research connections content at www.brandonu.ca bu cares be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community thank you